I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of Pilot Episodes. Now, I believe this is episode four, right? Is this officially episode four? Officially, yes. Obviously, we've had a, a minor sabbatical, um, but um, yeah, I think it is episode four. All right, excellent. Well, that voice that you can hear there is our senior serving officer, Godders. How are you, mates? I'm good. How are you, JB? Very, very well. Uh, I'm going to go in all, in clockwise order, as I can see, see on my screen. Duncan Skullcrusher Mason. I mean, I'm still not convinced that that's a real nickname, that someone's just given you that and then winding me up. How are you, mate? You all right? <laughs> As I said, it's all ironic. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> hey, it's uh, it's nice to be here. Uh, how you doing, JB? Yes, very, very, very well. And lastly, a man they call Anthony Parkinson, but has decided to call himself Big Tony. <laughs> <laughs> so, Technically, it was Big Tone. Big, big Tone. Uh, but I think we'll stick with Parky. Yeah, <laughs> well, big to- uh, which is also quite ironic. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it is ironic. Big Tony wanted, Big Tony gets. So, and can I just start by saying, Godders, you did good on the uh, hundreds. You came across pretty well, and I know you were sweating about missing tanking on telly. Yeah, that's because I actually did miss the tanking on telly, but fortunately that hit the uh, cutting room floor. Oh, we won't, we won't tell anyone, and so did. So that was your sixth prod, was it? Twentieth. Uh, no, no. <laughs> just he so... spoke to before that, he had to go home get another jet. So, just so everyone knows what we're, what, what we're talking about, uh, Goddess was on TV the other day. I know, I, I managed to break in there again. I did it once before, got away with it, when I flew James May in, uh, James May in, a, uh, in a typhoon for James May's 20th century, and that was about, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago. Um, and, yeah, this one was uh, RF100, so the McGregor brothers, Colin and Ewan, um, it, I thought it was. I hadn't seen it. I thought it was a fantastic program, actually, just uh, following through 100 years of the RAF. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. Did you fly Colin then? No, I flew Ewan. Ah, okay. I pulled rank to get the superstar. Have you not watched the, the show, Pucky? <laughs> I couldn't work that bit out, to I be honest. I watched 100 years, so now you've left. The Air Force is dead to you. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> no, 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 I thought I just couldn't work out who was in your boot. You were hugging both of them so much, it was hard to tell. <laughs> I think that was Ewan was just pleased that he hadn't baffed in the typhoon. Um, and uh, Colin was pleased that uh, I think he hadn't either. Now, because remember, he'd, he'd last flown a tornado. Yeah. Now, when you're flying people, I'm assuming Ewan McGregor hasn't got much flying experience. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, he done he flew in the back of a two-seat Spitfire. 
and uh, he, he'd, he'd had a go at his pilot's license as well, I think. Right. So how how hard can you push a civilian in a Eurofighter compared to say if you took up Dunk or Parky? There are restrictions. So because they haven't done the full training that uh, that we've done when we're flying. They haven't done the altitude chambers in case the thing decompresses at altitude. They haven't done sea survival, all these sorts of things. Um, they haven't done the centrifuge, which is the best contraption on the planet. I love that thing. In fact, I ought to tweet. In fact, I can't uh, tweet pictures of my entire bruised body when I got out of that thing for the first time. The centrifuge is which James Bond film is it with Roger Moore when he's going around in the centrifuge and has to shoot the dials with his watch. Uh, it's good. It's good. It'll come to me. It's the, it's in America, and it's it's a late one. It's something like it's Moonraker. I think it's got to be Moonraker, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, Moonraker. It has to be Moonraker. So I don't know whether you remember that, JB. Um, Are you comparing but... yourself to James Bond? Negative. <laughs> he got out of there fine. I was equivalent. He, he manages to tank first time <laughs> when they poured. <laughs> When they poured me out of that centrifuge for the first time, I was a quivering wreck. Definitely not James Bond material. But, um, yeah, they take you up to 9G and sustain it. For how long? So you get used to pulling 9G, nine times the force of gravity. Uh, But you're limited with the passenger because, frankly, if you did that with the passenger, they'd pass out. In fact, I don't know whether you boys had seen it, but there is a very funny YouTube video of a reporter in America goes flying in the backseat of, uh, I think it's one of the Blue Angels. So he's got the open, he hasn't got the oxygen mask on, he's got the boom mic with his helmet. And someone has told him to chew this Arcacia gum or something along that. Uh, and the guy goes, ready, here comes 9G, and he's chewing. That's <laughs> going up and down. And then the bloke pulls 9G and immediately he goes out, he's asleep straight away and his head slumps into his lap. And the guy eases off the G, and his head comes up again into camera shot and starts chewing the gum again. And the guy goes, are you all right? He went, yeah, yeah, fine. And that keeps happening. It's flipping brilliant. So that is what would happen um, if someone wasn't trained properly, maybe. Well, do you know what, though? I just, I was watching, so there is a lot of, um, um, thankfully, there's a lot of RAF 100 stuff on the TV at the moment. And BBC Four uh, has got a lot of stuff on. And I, I came up to, uh, to put the telly on last night. And it had a... Um, a thing that was done by uh, Peter Snow and Dan Snow, and it was called Battlefield Britain. I think it was around about uh, 10 years ago, um, but it was a, it was a really cool program um, about um, just running up to the Battle of Britain and then uh, the Battle of Britain itself. And one of the things that uh, Dan Snow did, they put him in a, um, I, I think it was an extra, uh, it was a, certainly a high-performance uh, aerobatic machine. And he, he wasn't used to it. He went up with uh, Andy Cubin with cubes, and um, and he said, right, here comes 7G. And uh, and he pulled 7G, and you could see he looked like he went under a little bit. I mean, he was definitely feeling it. Um, and, uh, again, he said, right, this time I'm going to try and, you know, he said you can squeeze your legs a bit this time, see if that helps. And, um, and he said, oh, yeah, it feels a bit better. But, he, you know, he was in a pretty, you know, he, he admitted as he got out of the aeroplane, he wasn't in a, in a great way. Uh, so what limit do they, do they put on the typhoon there if you've got a passenger in, guys? I think it was 5G. I thought it was 7 because the pressure breathing was good. But that was, you know, maybe minerals, I don't know. Yeah, it, it was 5. Party went for 7. I forgot already. A couple of G. Won't make any difference. I've, I've got a Dan Snow passenger story, quickie. I flew him in a typhoon. 
and they were, I don't know what the police was for patrolling the sky, you know, defending the skies or something like that. Anyway, we, we landed and we got out and he bathed quite badly and he was absolutely sodden in his immersion suit, looking pretty bad. And we got the, uh, at the ops desk, we were just signing the aircraft in and we got the, uh, uh, a quick camera and just have a quick squint, check out the footage was good. And we all crowded around and watched this thing play and the screen was completely blank and black other than the audio. And one of the ground crew was like, are there two power switches for it then? It's like, yeah, yeah, there's one for the camera and one for the audio. He went, oh, I only put one of those on. So it's like, oh, that's bad. And then we then had to get his sweaty helmet and stuff, put it back on and fly again. (laughs) And he puked a second time. He's a trooper though, isn't he? It it was honestly, his expression. And that night he had to give some talk at Hendon. And, you know, he left... I have never seen a mate so shattered as, as you know, he was asleep at the time he left the gates. But he was, uh, he was up for it, and he did a brilliant piece to camera on the second trip, feeling like death. It was, it was really cool. Do, do, have you seen the one where Jamie Clarkson goes into an F-15? Yeah, he's yeah. Yeah, puking on the nose, Will. Yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, I, I mean, the, I guess the overriding question everyone wants to ask is, um, when do I get into a Eurofighter? Oh, we'll have to sort it out, won't we? Well, obviously. I mean, that, that, that is the overriding question. We'll have to stick you through the centrifuge first. Hey, I do have to say on that, though, the, I, I, I think in a, in a typhoon, you could probably take passengers up to 9G just because the kit is so flipping good. Um, Parky would have done the same thing, but in the, uh, I had to go through the centrifuge in the US when I went over there and was flying the F-16. And the kit that they've got is fairly old kit. Um, there's a little bit of light pressure breathing, but it's not as much as you do in, in Typhoon. And trying to hang in there at 9G is some of the hardest thing you ever do. Um, combat, the uh, basic fighting maneuvers, dogfighting. One of the hardest trips I've st- done in my entire life was a defensive combat ride where you're looking over your shoulder, you start defensive, and it is all just about maneuvering. You're not always pulling 9G. But that was like sprinting the 100 metres about 30 times. You know, wow. it is full, whip the mask off your face, sweat pouring down your face. And it's not like that in a typhoon. The, the, there's a lot of pressure breathing. The jacket inflates, the trousers inflates, they're full coverage trousers. Um, all you get to feel is the pain. So how much difference does good kit make? Huge. Yeah, G-Suit's G- awesome in Typhoon. The only snag, uh, JB, is you're not a Hollywood star, so Goddess won't fly you. Ah, uh, is that right? Oh, well. <laughs> uh, so what happened was at uh, Lossy Mouth, you know, all of the all of the JPs on the squadron were like, oh, that'd be cool, yeah, maybe we'll get to, uh, we'll get to fly get to fly Ewan, and uh, Station Commander walks in, right, boys, I'm flying Ewan. Well, when... And uh, that was it. And you saw, you know, the, the boy in the programme, that was it. He got, you know, 10 seconds on telly, and then Goddess came in and... Gave him a hand off into the face and said, "Right, it's all about it's, me. it's all about social." And two hours planning, into makeup, you looked all right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the filter they had on the camera. Sorry, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna have to ask another um, another boring question. Are, are flight suits particular to the aircraft? Mm, uh, not really. Well, so no. why couldn't you just buy your own, you, you, like your own suit, and then go and fly an F-16? A better suit. I oh, see so what you mean. Yeah, no, the, the flying suits just kind of a coverall, but the G suit. The G yeah, suit, sorry. Is, the G suit is um, is uh, special to the aircraft. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, like why? 
don't know. Typhoon's got a better one. <laughs> I don't know. I think they're pretty, so they're pretty similar for a, a particular period in time. So I'm pretty certain that the 15, the F-16, the F-18s were all flying with um, yeah, the, same. the same. And Typhoon came along because it was the newest fighter on the block. They brought like, in fact, F-22 was flying with that stuff as well. Um, but we uh, developed this um, different system, like I said, heavier pressure breathing, even little G booties, these little G boots <laughs> that you slip these socks on. I bet you never wore them either, Parky. But you slip Try them once. The G suit plugs into them and that inflates to to stop the blood pooling in your uh, in your feet oh. and to stop feet pain as well. Because one thing you notice, because the Typhoon kit keeps you awake, at 9G, you start to notice the pain of all the blood pooling in your elbows and in your feet. Jesus. Yeah, it's it, it's not a nice feeling, I'm telling you. Well, uh, had, uh, I just had a, uh, a special uh, anti-G jock strap as well that inflates. <laughs> uh, you know. Now that was in the Harrier, Dunk. <laughs> Dunk's never actually worn any G kit because he flew the Harrier for so long. <laughs> You're a Harrier, mate. Don't say that. Good goddess. Yeah, well, here's, here's an interesting one, JB. The Swiss, I think it was, developed this thing called, was it Labelle, Parky? The Labelle system, which was completely independent of the aeroplane. They just squeezed themselves into this suit. They looked like Russian cosmonauts. And this suit had tubes all the way around it that were filled with fluid. So when you pulled G, the fluid was, and it was a particular density, used to get to the extremities quicker than the blood would pull in the extremities and start squeezing against it with oh, the wow. hydrostatic pressure. Um, and it was completely independent, so you didn't need a big anti-G system in the aeroplane because obviously, no, well, not obviously, the way an anti-G system works is that there's a bleed-off from the engine, and some sort of depressurizing valve, and then it, it, it comes through a, uh, uh, a pipe that's attached to your seat that you clip into when you sit in the aeroplane. I always thought I actually always thought that it was liquid. That's that's how I thought thought that it worked. No, uh, the the weird thing I can remember Typhoon early days was when you checked the pressure breathing on the ground, it felt like somebody kind of got a massive nitrogen cylinder, stuffed a hose into your mouth, and turned it on, and it felt like you were just being blown up, you know, with just air being pumped into your mouth. But when you pull G, you don't notice it, and the only thing you notice when you try and talk. You sound stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Not that dissimilar to normal, I mean. Yes, I was just going to say, I don't think he put on anything there, did he? <laughs> uh, so let's ha- let's have a look with them, boys. We've done 14 minutes of what God has did. What have you two boys been up to uh, last last couple of weeks? Any, uh, any decent flying? Uh, I have flown a single-seater and a two-seat Spitfire which was very nice, the Era Legends uh, one. So we're just getting ready for the uh, the season to begin. So hopefully next week at Cywell should be flying. Any um, Hollywood superstars involved in that? None that I oh, can I, recall. I just wanted to check who won. Oh, just I think... saw Charlie Brown. Does that count? Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, so where did you go? What did you do with it? Did you just take it up for a, a, a quick shakedown? Or... Yeah, quick shakedown, 20 minutes and... Uh, and uh, tried not to uh, mess up the landing. Standard, <laughs> standard trip, really. How'd it go? Did you, did you get good. nervous? 
thousand ounce bit, you'll be all right now. A bit. Like <laughs> <laughs> I think you always are. first one of the year. It's always a bit blimey. I remember this. Now, when you what, take what was it? You said Mark Nine. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you take a uh, Spitfire up for uh, you know a shakedown. What exactly do you do? Do you have your little favourite routes that you like to fly? Do you, have a, do you have a nice scenic route? Or is it very strict? Do you have to do a, a certain amount of procedures? No. No, so, I mean, really, it was just to, um, you know, make sure everything was good. So just got airborne, went a bit to the north of Duxford and, uh, and you know, put the gear up and down, flaps, stall, you know, clean, we call it. So with the gear and flaps up, then stalling it. So deliberately flying a bit slow with the gear and flaps down. Check that's good. Uh, and then some aerobatics and came home. Any any wing drops, anything like that at the store? Yeah, just absolutely benign, standard, beautiful. See, that's always, that's um, that's one of the things you know. It's a great aeroplane, JB. That when you can when you can stall an aeroplane and nothing nasty happens, like it flips upside down or any of that sort of stuff, ah. you know you've got an aeroplane right there. So you take off, you do some bits, you do some testing, land it, pick um, uh, pick up a check and go home. Um, how um, how about you, Dunk? Uh, well, I've been uh, for the last couple of weeks. I've been up in Yorkshire flying with seventy two squadron. So um, we do a um, every two years. We have to go to each training squadron, and uh, it's a, like an independent check to make sure their instructors are uh, are instructing in the right way. Some of them uh, will get upgrades to their to their qualification effectively, and so we'll we'll do that as well. And indeed, fly with students as well. So it's a really uh, really cool couple of weeks flying everything from um, uh, upper air work, um, uh, departing the aeroplane and spinning it all the way down to doing uh, formation, uh, fighting wing uh, and at low level uh, and a land away. We went over to uh, to Blackpool for a land away with, uh, with two yeah. of the students. So it's been a really, uh, really good couple of weeks. So and it was, uh, <clears throat> I've got two questions for you then. Mm. First of all, who are 72 Squadron? What do they do? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Yeah, so seventy two squadron are—they're um, a training squadron, and they—they—they um, they fly the Tucano. So the Tucano is in its last uh, year of service now. It's um, when I joined up, uh, Parky and Goddess, I don't think flew the Tucano when they went through uh, training. I think they flew the Jet Provost. Um, so I was one of the first courses to fly in this brand new machine called the Tucano. Uh, in 1992, and um, and here I am still flying it, and now it's it's within its its last year of service now. So it trains people, it trains uh, students to be fast jet pilots at the basic stage of training. Ah. So it's a it's a single engined uh, turboprop. It's got about it's, you know what it's a, it's a remarkably similar performance to a Spitfire actually, um, and um, so it's uh, it's got a tandem um, tandem cockpits. Uh, and um, it, it's it's quite old. It's quite dated now. There's no um, there's no glass cockpit uh, inside it. And so, 72 Squadron take uh, guys that have perhaps done elementary flying training. So they've just flown a, a single piston engine aircraft, and they take those guys and they then start molding them into being fighter pilots. And uh, they have um, it's a very steep learning curve for the boys actually. And uh, as I was just saying, you know, they learn to uh, fly in formation at low level to navigate uh, in this aircraft at 200. 40 knots and at the end of that they get their wings as a as a royal air force pilot so it's a pretty special time for them um and then uh, and then they go on to the hawk 
So does that same squadron... JB, 72 squadron will have been dreading this visit for about two years. <laughs> is, it like, is it like the feeling it's that... like the Gestapo coming to visit you. Is it like... Um, is, it, is it like head teachers and like teaching staff when they hear that... When they hear that Ofsted are like coming over and they'll get rather yeah, stressed. But, but 10 times worse. Yeah, at least, at least 10 times worse. Because no Ofsted inspectors are called skull crusher. <laughs> so, uh, it was quite hard work for me. I have to polish my jack boots up and uh, you know, I have to, uh, you know, make sure that uh, I have some big sticks to uh, to whack people with. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's How else do they learn, eh? Say again. How, uh, how else do they learn, eh? Well, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's why if they're not hitting them with sticks, then uh, then frankly they're getting it wrong. That's the kind of uh, guidance we give them. Uh, so, would seventy two squadron operate Hawks and Tacanos, or do they have separate squadrons for that? No, a separate squadron. So, um, four squadron um, are at RAF Valley, and they uh, they fly the Hawk T two. Um, and so uh, guys graduate from the Chicano uh, from seventy two squadron and go on to four squadron before then going to their frontline OCUs. Excellent. Now, my second question was, what is land away? Is he, so, ah. did, did you say land away? You went to Blackpool and did some... some I did, yes. That is, that is another good question. Um, I mean, it is what it says on the tin, So, uh, which is, you know, you have your home base. Uh, and, uh, and actually, for these guys going through training, uh, what becomes a very normal event of just going to different airfields, whether they be civilian or military, is actually quite a big step up at taking a formation of aircraft, making sure um, that it, it, it's in the right order to, to go into that airfield uh, and land uh, safely um, actually becomes quite a uh, it's quite a big deal when they haven't done it before because they get used to it it's like a sort of a comfort blanket of being at home in your own home Um, and then perhaps you know suddenly going right well you've got to go and cook dinner in someone else's home you know it's 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 that kind of uh, it's it's being uncomfortable so that's uh, environment so that's very interesting because you said it sounds it is what it says on the tin. When you said land away at Blackpool, I thought it meant flying off the coast. It means actually landing somewhere else. Yeah, landing somewhere else. And cooking dinner, by the sounds of things. I was going to say, did you make them cook dinner? Is that part of the check? Yes, it is, yeah. They have to make me something to eat. <laughs> he gets hyperglycemic quite easily. <laughs> oh, yeah, if they don't yeah, keep feeding me, they're never going to oh, pass. Cool. That's, that's for a future episode. Do not ever let him get hyperglycemic. In fact, we ought to have biscuit a broadcast it's all right the missus has just fed me we're safe we're safe (laughs) (laughs) um blackpool's a good old place to land though isn't it that is great bounce the hurricane there about 40 feet into the air on landing (laughs) no one will have noticed (laughs) (laughs) so Uh, we did we did actually have something we did actually have something to talk about i mean i know we've just done a uh, 20 minutes of basically ca- basically catching up. But we did decide, prior to recording, you, you were going to talk about what you believe to be the best fight- fighter aircraft of the last 100 years. Now, I'm not sure... I, I'm going to let you do it, right? I'm going to let you do it. But if you come back and say either Hurricane and Spitfire, I'm literally just going to stop recording. I'm going to bin it all. So you're going to have to be more inventive. So, that's so I had this that, idea... That that's that, different that, to the brief, JB. Is it? No, no, no. no. So, so here we go. So... I had the idea that we'd just gone through RF-100, uh, right, 1st of April, so 100 years of the world's first independence, which all of us have been a, a massive part of for over a quarter of its existence. And I thought it'd be really cool to go and have a look in the uh, in the books. 
or I, most of the ones I've chosen here are, um, are just favorites of mine, really. Uh, and ones that I would have wanted to have flown, actually, of, uh, of aircraft through, through those decades. And we kind of stuck to, well, I'll, I'll find out in a minute, but I stuck to fighters. Um, with the RAF, you boys might have gone elsewhere uh, as well. But just to maybe have a quick chat and see whether anyone agrees. Um, so, you know, starting in that 18 to 20s post-war period, uh, as an example, I went a bit left field and picked out a SPAD. Wow. Don't even, yeah, know, exactly. don't, don't even know what that is. Um, now, in typical senior officer fashion, it's just worth pointing out here that Goddess let us know this about half an hour before we were about to podcast. Oh, I've got a lovely idea, boys. Why don't you run around and have a look at some of the fighters that you think that you might? I've, I've been doing this all week. Um, so <laughs> please just trot on, go and see uh, if there's anything you can think about. Well, I chose Fab. What did you choose for, for you know, 18, 19, 20, that sort of uh, at the end of that decade, Parky. Uh, well, I thought you said twenties, thirties, or forties. All right, we'll go with twenties because actually I snuck oh, well, in. Well, I didn't that. know. Mine flew in thirty-eight. Poor brief, Godfrey. Poor brief. Poor brief. So this is how organised we are. But why did you go for a spad out of interest? What was well, your? So I went for a spad because um, if, if you look up a spad, um, which I'm doing. Yes. Yeah, so look up a spad. It's a cool, tiny little neat fighter that um we actually used at the uh at the back end of the war um until a little bit after but for me when i was on exchange with the americans on the f-16 one of our sister squadrons up at langley the eagle base was the 94th fighter squadron and they were called the hats uh, the uh, the spads and their emblem and all of their stuff was eddie rickenbacker and um, little pictures of spads from the First World War because the um, uh, the US uh, had hundreds of these things. Um, and to me, it's just a, it, I mean, it's a French fighter, but it's just a cool looking fighter um, that looks a bit meaner than some of those early biplanes. Um, and, it, and it's got that link to the uh, to that US side. So I'd seen an awful lot of it um, over the years that I was over there. And actually recently when I uh, when I went back and flew there about 18 months ago over at Langley, you know, it was good to be back on the spads again. Um, so I thought that'd be a good, good little choice. So the 100 years of the Royal Air Force, you picked a French aircraft that was flown by the Americans. And us. <laughs> 19 and 23 squadron. That's how much research I did. Yeah, that's oh, wow. okay. You, you redeemed yourself. Did right. you do that in the last half an hour when, like, when you told us? Well, <laughs> one minute before coming in. <laughs> uh, I, I went slightly more um, abstract, and this is a bit of an odd one. It was kind of like, what, what was cool? And I recall when I was younger, maybe about 13, I used to read every now and again those commando magazine oh, things. Yes. Remember them? Brilliant expressions that the German pilots used to say when they got bounced by spits. Brilliant. You still read them. <laughs> oh, I do. Yeah, that's fair. But there was one of them, and I don't know if you guys will know this aircraft, but it was a cool read. It was one of my faves, and it was about the Westland Whirlwind. Ooh. Oh, yes. Now, that's that bad boy, that bad boy flew. So it was a two-engine, but it was pretty modern. It was kind of like a Mosquito, but it was smaller. It was more of a fighter. But yeah. two engines, so it was meant to go really fast. Bubble canopy. But the weird yes, thing, it flew in 1938, which I didn't realise. And it, you know, obviously it wasn't in the Battle of Britain. And it had massive teething problems because 
all the Merlin engines they put in the, the Spitz and Hurries, and they gave this thing the Rolls-Royce Peregrine engine, yeah. and it was just a bit gutless with that engine. Uh, and, you know, it, apparently it was a delightful aircraft to fly and still was pretty fast. They only built about 120 other things. But if you YouTube Westland Whirlwind, I think it's 243 Squadron, something like that, and there's this black and white shot of all the boys. There's about 30 of these things lined up. They're all sort of ditting on, and they jump in them, and they beat the airfield up well in their Westland Whirlwinds. And it's just good RAF footage from 1943. Nice. And a cool-looking cool aircraft. Well, oh, that's a, that's a belter. I was on uh, 234 at, uh, at Bally when we were flying Hawks before they, uh, um, I don't know where they went. It was 234 and 74 Squadron at the time, wasn't it? They'd moved up from um, Brody. So I've got a follow-up question for that then. Um, has there ever been a truly successful two-engined propeller fighter? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A mosquito. Mozzie, lightning. But, I mean... These weren't comparable to the single-engined fighters. Yeah, I, th- I think the P thirty-eight Lightning that was the American with a with a twin boom, very yeah. good kind of very modern configuration, bubble canopy and uh, nose gear. I think it, it gave it gave lots of fuel, lots of power. They were pretty fast. They weren't as agile. They definitely couldn't turn as well in a, in a turning fight. But they tended to have awesome firepower, loads of cannons and stuff in the nose. But I'd say the I don't know what do you think, boys. The P thirty eight Lightning was probably one of the one of the good fighters of uh, of World War Two two engine. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Now yeah. I agree. It was my favourite in Battle of Midway, the computer game as well. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right in thinking that was the aircraft that that went supersonic in a dive and lost and, and then you lost control? Oh no, you're you're probably thinking of the. Um... I'm sure they used to lose. Con- uh, if it isn't a dive, the You're uh, the thud, the um, P38. No, not P38. P47. P- the Thunderbolt. P47 Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt. Yeah, what? that thing used to go into that. Um, uh, there's some brilliant books. There's a uh, one of the first books I remember uh, reading on aviation was Tumult in the Clouds by James Goodson, and he flew um, he flew Spitfires on Eagle squadrons before America joined the war. And then ended up on uh, P-47s and P-51s. And some of his stories about the the, uh, the Thunderbolt are just flipping amazing. And actually, Parker was there when uh, we parked next to one at Goodwood, the Goodwood Revival one year. Yeah. We were brought in a couple of Spitfires. And this Thunderbolt <laughs> there, and it's massive. It is a huge aeroplane. And, and uh, yes, you know, I definitely... I've got it as my 40s. Uh, well, I've got a few for the 40s. But uh, yeah, I started because the, the, I thought the, so the brief was the 20s, 30s, 40s, etc. I didn't know how far we went up. So I sort of started in the 20s with the in fact, you know what, JB is when you and I were wandering uh, around Hendon when we did our first podcast. Yep. And, uh, and you were asking that same question, which would you like to fly? Uh, and, uh, you know, talking about flying the Spitfire again. And I said, you know what? Um, actually, I'd, I'd much prefer to fly that one down there. It's a Bristol Bulldog. Um, well, I've got that, mate. That's what I've got for the 20s. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I just think it is the most beautiful aeroplane, beautiful biplane. Um, it's, uh, of course, it's got a fixed undercarriage, but uh, it's got a, a, a big, it's a Bristol yeah. Jupiter 
piston engine, radial engine, 400, 440 horsepower is what it, it produced. And uh, it just looks like it would be a beautiful aeroplane to uh, to fly. And when you think in the 20s, it's sort of, it, it's got a hundred, it's doing 155 knots on it, nearly 180 miles an hour. Um, you know, it's got guns and bombs. So pretty swept up for its time and just a, a lovely looking machine. Now, boys- I reckon, I think Douglas Barder was flying one of those when he had his crash. So, yeah, he was. Yeah, so that, it was a, it was a bulldog. Yeah, no, and he was doing unbelievably it. low aerobatics in it. He was good, and he just didn't push enough when he was inverted and clipped the wing. But I mean, and where did he crash? I'll Google that. I reckon it, it was, no, was somewhere down. North Old Way or somewhere. That was in Goodwood, wasn't it? Wasn't it? No, I'm on it. Oh no, so, it's just near there. Just near there. Just down on the south coast. So it was Kenley. It was Kenley, wasn't it? Oh, I didn't think it was. Oh, I, I just see North Old Kenley. That's what I was thinking. Let me uh, let now, me discover. You talk about now. Whilst talk about it, another aircraft. So it was, now, it was the Barder Link that uh, I I think it's a great looking aeroplane as well. And it was the Barder Link that that made me choose it because seeing I grew up a mile away from Kenley Airfield and seeing Reach for the Sky, which they did they filmed at Kenley in the sixties, was just, I, it, it was one of the things that got me interested. And when you think exactly what you were talking about there, Parky, they were doing a three-ship formation display yes. at the time, and he was just out mucking about doing his aerobatics at one feet and screwed it and, uh, you know, uh, lost his legs. And that was in December 31. It was that long before the war actually started. Yeah, you, that's absolutely December 31. doesn't say where, though. So, gents, just whilst, um, just whilst Parky is Googling things, I just want to uh, revisit this. Uh, P-38, just so you know, um, during dives, it would shake violently. It was called the Mark Tuck. don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, it'd go into a high-speed com- compression stall, and the controls would lock up, leaving the option, leaving the pilot no, uh, no option but to bail out. Yeah, it's called compressibility. And so at that time, they, they hadn't worked out, you know, the... Uh, the problems with aerodynamics as they approach the speed of sound. Um, And you get this phenomenon called compressibility. And because the aircraft weren't designed to, uh, and the aerofoils, the wing sections weren't designed uh, to be able to cope with it, um, it would mean that the controls would then be, um, these shock waves would then interfere with the controls and make the aircraft as you said, uncontrollable. So um, it was a long time. A lot of people lost their lives at this in this stage of flight, in this uh, sort of just uh, pre-Mac 1 uh, subsonic um, speed range. And the aircraft would break up or they couldn't control them. Um, and again, I think Eric Winkle-Brown uh, talked about that in his book. Well, many people have, in fact. But uh, perhaps it's something we can look, we can look a, a little bit closer at because I think I, I spoke to Eric about it and I think I've got a bit of... Uh, a bit of um, uh, not footage of uh, audio uh, of him talking about that very thing. I'll try and dig it out for our next uh, for our next podcast. Excellent. Yeah, I remember this. Uh, so he flies. He flies a jet that a mate had died in. So it had just broken up, and they had no idea why. So he flew exactly the same profile, and at about you know transonic so you know 0.85 0.9 not quite supersonic this thing just goes into a weird oscillations you know plus 4g minus 4 and he's going to lose it and he manages just to 
ease it out, throttle back, and he, and he discovers why the aircraft crashed. You know, there was a just an aerodynamic problem with it. But oh, he was extraordinary, wasn't it? I'll, I'll cancel the the, uh, the. I won't get that for next week. Barky's uh, Barky's just. <laughs> That's the taste of it. was brilliant. He's ruined it. He's got it much oh. better, but pretty much, you know, Parky's paraphrase. That's because he was googling. He can't listen and Google at the same time. I can. I've got the answer. Reading you know, Aero Club. Hey, I can see you couldn't fly and talk on the radio at the same time as well. You used to go into a steep. I've got dive. so much better. So here we go. He crashed at Woodley Aerodrome near Reading. Yeah. In uh, Bristol Bulldog. So we all got that wrong. Yeah. Well, apart from the Bulldog bit. Yeah, apart <laughs> from the, so, so that was the 20s. Did you get anything for the 30s? Yeah, sure I did. So again, uh, for me, uh, it's just uh, an aircraft that I, I've always uh, um, just thought it's a beautiful looking aeroplane and it's the Hawker Fury. So another uh, another biplane, but you know, almost the, the well, That's essentially a hurricane with two wings, right? Yeah, correct. <laughs> I was just gonna say it's effectively it seems, you know, when you look at it, it's the uh, uh the forerunner to the to the hurricane and you can see the lineage in there. Uh but again, I just uh, I just think it's a beautiful looking aeroplane. Would you uh, would, would, you, would you say the thirties was an era which produced maybe the worst aircraft of, of all time though? Just 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 to counter that. I mean, if you look at what they started World War Two with and what they ended World War Two with. I mean, it was just development was so unbelievably quick at that time, JB. I mean, when when the Hurricane and Spit were first flying, so end of 35, beginning of 36, the RAF was still taking delivery of Gladiators, brand new biplanes. <laughs> I chose the Gladiator as my aeroplane from that era. And uh, again, because uh, there was a linkage with Kenley, um, I think, you know, and they were flying in uh, in Kenley in, uh, up until the beginning of the war, exactly as you said. But I did come across, I'd not heard of him before. Have you heard of the South African pilot, um, Pat Pattle, at all? Um, so he, he, wasn't based out, he wasn't based at a Malta by any chance, was he? He was, Flipping it, JB. You're you're on the money tonight. Are you googling this? No, I'll I tell you why. Because <laughs> because the Gladiator for me, there's one story. I think they had like three Gladiators out of Monta, which uh, flew heroically against Luf, um, against the Luf, Luf, uh, Luftwaffe against all odds, and that's and that's just why it came to mind. Yeah, faith, hope, charity, and desperation. Is that who? Uh, um, yeah, is well, that what they're the called? Falklands jets are named faith, hope, charity after the uh, after the. Um... Yeah, the Malta ones, and then the Spitz reinforced them. But but this guy, he 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 was killed in forty one. He had sixteen air to air kills in a Gladiator. It's <laughs> quite impressive during the war in that uh, in that region. Um, then he switched to Hurricane. He ended up getting uh, he he ace in a day. He got five kills in one day flying the Hurricane. Wow! 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 That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, now uh, here's a here's a really stupid question for you, but. Why did the biplane die, die out? Why, why, why does why do two wings not work? Too slow. There's a lot of drag. Too much drag. Although they did have a hurricane where they designed a, uh, a hurricane. I don't know if you boys have ever seen it. Um, that was designed to go off a carrier. That was a biplane to get the lift. Okay, because the the drag isn't too, so much of a, a, a of a penalty at lower speeds. So. It gets the lift of the biplane, then would jettison the top wing. 
I mean, they came up with some wacky ideas. It's pretty cool. Well, imagine doing that testing for the wing release. It was probably Winkle Brown again, wasn't it? Oh, it's just the tail off again. I'll tell you the weirdest thing which I've ever seen, ever. Uh, And it's kind of in relation to that. Have you ever seen the rubber landing decks? Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. I think we, I think Winkle did that as well. He pretty much did everything, didn't he, that fella? I think, you know, after about three pints in the pub, that sounds like a brilliant idea, doesn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll make a deck completely out of rubber. <laughs> it wouldn't hurt then. You could do yeah, a vertical landing. Hot shots. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Have you seen the footage of them landing on it? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's insane. It's, it's just phenomenal. <laughs> You'd need your gum shield in, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what, do, what did you go for to you then Dunk come on Daddy's turning this off if he goes a bit far a hurricane no 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 I've got three there's so many in the 40s that's the thing so uh, am I allowed three I've put three but there's so many but I, I um, first of all you know to me uh, the Mustang uh, has always been uh, you know just P-51 Mustang most phenomenal looking aeroplane um, and it was a war winner as well you know along with the Mosquito the Spitfire the Hurricane so that's always been there um, and I, I would love to fly one of those equally um, a- again watching uh, quite a lot of the footage over the weekend uh, with um, with it being um, the uh, RAF 100 um, again we go back to Winkle Brown and what he did um, he was lucky enough to fly both the British and the German aircraft, and, and I would love to uh, fly an FW-190. I, I mean, I think that is just, again, yeah. an incredible, uh, the, the performance of it, and uh, I think it looks right as well as a fighter. It looks mean. It looks hard. Um, you know, it, it says, don't mess with me. Uh, and so I think, you know, that that would certainly be up there. And the, and the, the, the third was actually the one that you guys have mentioned already, the Thunder bolt because the people that i've it's not something i think that you naturally look at and go wow that's a beautiful looking airplane but everyone that i've spoken to says that airplane is phenomenal it's you know it's fast it's maneuverable it's nice to land it's nice it's just a as an all-rounder a fantastic airplane so i i've taken the liberty of having three i hope Maybe you don't mind. Well, so I went for the uh, the FW one nineties Nemesis in the Hawker Tempest. I love um, aircraft. You know when we were, and it was because again, it, it, I was reminded of it down in uh, in Hendon when we were down there, and uh, that just looks like a mean aeroplane. And I think I mentioned it on one of the uh, maybe on one of the earlier podcasts, but Pierre Klosterman's book, The Big Show, where he yeah. Flies, yeah. flies typhoons and then tempests. And his low-level missions out over Germany um, and Belgium and that area post-D-Day in these things, just unbelievable. What are you go- I'm going to have to reread that book again now. Well, I think for if there's people listening, I, I read that book recently as well um, by Pierre Klosterman. It's called The Big Show. If you want a just jaw-dropping read, about um, the heroism of those guys as uh, as the uh, Allied forces pushed through Germany. The losses were just phenomenal. Um, the way that he writes it, the emotion he writes it with, is just uh, it's spellbinding. So uh, you know, if you're if you're short of a book to read, then uh, look that up. Good knowledge. He's one of those. He he's got his. Uh, I think Le, Le Grand Charles is his aircraft, and it's it's beautifully written. And at the end, when he says goodbye to 
you know, this aircraft that's kept him alive on so many trips. He just goes up, plays with some class for a bit, lands, never sees it again. And it's moving. It really is. It's a, an amazing book. Yeah, and when, you know, when they're, when they're running out of gas, dodging AAA, some hefty AAA as well, in the weather, and Fog Wolf 190s turn up. Uh, yeah. Just amazing, isn't it? The, uh, the stuff. Definitely. We ought to do pilot episodes book club. We'll yeah. <laughs> my spoiler on that one is can you remember there's, there's a, a chapter and they basically work out at the end that it's it's hitler's private airfield where they've got some heinkel refuel to maybe try and it's right at the end of the war maybe trying to get into south america or something like that but essentially they're just tasked to strafe some arado some jets that are on this airfield and eight of them come out the sun and do one sweep across the airfield in sort of a massive line abreast and he takes out a line of jets and they pull out at the end of it and two of them are left. Six yeah. have been shot down in about five seconds. And it's just, you know, you're, you're there with him. It's unbelievable stuff they were doing. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Bloody hell. Oh, I'm reading that again. Yeah, it's worth a read, JB. Amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm all over it. Um, sorry, uh, you made me lose track now. Uh, where are we up to? Uh, that was forties. Um, that was given his forties. Have you? Have yeah, well, I was going to go typhoon actually, which is the oh, um, yeah. you know essentially the tempest typhoon. They were they were so close. I think the tempest had a, a more reinforced tail, didn't it, than the typhoon? But essentially, it was the you know a twenty four liter. It was a massive aircraft compared to the you know the Mustang Spitfire. It was probably do you reckon bigger than a Thunderbolt? I don't know. Certainly similar. Yeah, oh, yeah. Big big aircraft. Well, Thunderbolt just... sort of docky and sat higher whereas a tempest and a typhoon are just overall big aeroplanes aren't they yeah yeah but just you know just awesome speed and you know you're really you know we always said the mark 19 was spitfire was about the quickest you know propellant aircraft and and i think with the typhoon the tempest you know after that you're really into you need to have a jet to go faster you know it's about as quick as you'll get a war machine with a with a propeller on it no yeah during the Second World War, during the latter stages of you know um, of propeller-driven aircraft, who were the real stars here? the The guys who were designing the airframes, or the guys designing the engines, because it always seems to correlate with the same engines. That's a good I, question. Probably a bit of both, really. You know, you need an, an airframe, don't you, that can fly fast, and you need the power to make it. You know, it's without either of them, you're you're stuffed. So I guess. They went hand in hand, didn't they? You know, engine performance and and they had and to be designed together because the bigger the end, look at the Mark 19 Spitfire. You, you put that against a Mark One Spitfire in the hangar, the things about oh, maybe Dunk knows the exact figure or Parky, but uh, you know it's about ten foot longer, if 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 not more, because you've got so much more weight on the front because the engine is so much bigger, the Griffin mm. engine compared to the Merlin, that. Um, it's subsequently the the whole aeroplane is bigger down the back end. So you couldn't, I don't think you could just independently design an aeroplane and then, you know, put a... Well, didn't, uh, they, didn't they retrofit uh, the the Mustang from Allison engines to Rolls-Royce engines? Yeah, yeah they did. Yeah. But equally, you look at the, you know, there's there's little subtle redesigns in that as, when, as well. You know, the British version uh, initially didn't have the bubble canopy. It had, uh, you know, I guess it was almost... Yeah, it was yeah, it was, it was almost hurricane esque, I, I guess, in, in the canopy that it had. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they went on at that 
at that point to these sleeve valve engines that produce. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Used a huge amount of power. And uh, so, you know, at, at the Thunderbolt, I don't know if the Thunderbolt was a sleeve valve engine, but... Uh, it was radial, big radial. Big radial engine, yeah. But uh, the, the Tempest, certainly, um, with, with this uh, flipping Napier Sabre, it was called in it, and uh, it, it was uh, producing nearly 2,200 horsepower. Oh. And uh, it, it was, you know, again, it did 432 miles an hour, this thing. I mean, it's jet-like performance, really. Uh, and as Parky said, it's you couldn't really go any faster uh, with, with a propeller aeroplane. Are any of these bigger bigger aircraft, the later aircraft, still in existence, flying 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 with anyone? Well, we, when uh, Goddess and I was in, when we were at uh, Duxford and we looked at the, the there's a, a plan to try and get a typhoon flying. You know, yeah. it's quite it's at its early stage, but they've they kind of know the airframe and they know the engine the engine was there this beast of a you know as dunk says 24 cylinder engine but uh was, just a, was it a napier or a napier or a saber engine or something like that a napier yeah. saber is what it was called yeah ah. yeah so but, but you're right jb there's a there's a you know just think of there's so many types of aircraft that were built in the war and there's just so few flying you know the yeah. vast majority there aren't any airworthy examples yeah, yeah. I, I do wonder if like 3D printing will sort that out at, at some point because of course you know the problem is spare print parts. Yourself a, uh, print yourself a, a thunderbolt. Off. No, but you could, but you could Thank print, you for a trip, a, but you could print a part. <laughs> You've that, stunned that, us. That, that stop you having to dig them up at that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, were uh, were it perhaps fifties? Well, I'm going to go with this one. I went, and we've talked about this aeroplane before on the uh, on the podcast, but I went with the English Electric Lightning. Marvellous so, aircraft. Marvellous. Uh, the first RAF Mach 2, well, I, I, I don't know when it was, uh, oh, 1959, um, when it first flew. But uh, you're just strapping yourself to a rocket. 
I think we said before, don't you mention the guys, you know, low level over the sea, looking down the uh, the radar boot, as they called it, doing the intercepts on a pulse radar. But actually just getting in the bloody thing and going flying in the first place yeah. on strapping yourself to two rockets and a bunch of fuel, just amazing, especially at that time. You think 1959, well, you're only 30 years on from the SPAD at that point and yet you're going back to that's a good point yeah. actually and they, they said that i mean i i don't know you know parky can probably uh remember back this far but uh it was uh, it was said that you know if they were going off and doing an intercept and they just engaged the burners and then you know blasted up to you know 40 50, feet whatever they could get up to um and then they'd almost glide back and it was a 20 minute you didn't have any more fuel for the, than, than 20 minutes because what? but the performance of the thing was just eye-watering so how how do they actually how do they actually operate them? I, I'm guessing air to air refueling was vital for these things. Yeah, I, I think they could. Uh, eventually, they ended up with some over wing fuel tanks. Do you remember those? They, it yeah. looked a bit weird. And, and yeah, on the belly as well, and a big belly tank as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and exactly that. Yeah. Then they they put a more fuel internally. I'm fairly sure. I mean, my I, I did. I remember being in a phantom and doing a scramble. So we're, you know, this is late eighties and we're getting airborne to intercept two Russian bear aircraft that are coming down sort of Iceland way. And I was like Lucas on phantoms at the time. And, you know, it was, we were going to scramble. We used to scramble loads back in those days, but the, the controller said, no, no, it's the lightning's last ever scramble. So he, he got airborne from Bimbrook and, and got the tanker. And we almost sort of sat in the ground and, and you knew he was airborne. But he was so you always had to stay within some sort of diversion so you could go to Iceland or Norway or I guess northern Scotland. But because he was right in the middle, the lightning couldn't leave the tanker, essentially. So we then scrambled and I can just remember being plugged in to this Victor and looking over. I was on the left wing and on the right wing, there was this lightning. And it's like God says, it's just a cool jet. You know, it was old, but it was it had something about it that meant business other than it had a lack of fuel. Yeah. Now, I find this interception business very very interesting. What is the point? I mean, obviously the point is, you know, to stop you know Russians attacking UK airspace, I guess. But they're not actually going to do that. So why are you continually going up there just to prove you can do it? Well, well I mean, you're uh, mainly uh, policing uh, them. Turn that round, JB. What happens if you don't? Well, I mean... If they attack, they attack. I mean, you've probably got much more to worry about than a bear bomber. I mean, the way, the way I looked at it, JB, is that, I mean, you're actually just policing your airspace. So if you jump on an airliner and fly, I don't know, from Durham Tees to Denmark, you're just going to go out across the, uh, the North Sea and you're going to mm. be speaking to air traffic controllers. And these aircraft will just fly straight through the airways. So they're, they're, they shouldn't be there. You know, there's, there's rules and there's controlled airspace. That's how airliners uh, fly around. And these boys are just floating around speaking to nobody. So they need to be policed, you know, and what what are they up to? And, you know, we've had instances where they've they've gone pretty close to the UK mainland. You know, that's obviously us. And I think Norway gets bored of <laughs> intercepting the Russians up there, you know, but they, <laughs> they just, you know, we just fly on their wing and see what they're doing. So, and, uh, what's the interaction like when you get up there? Can you talk to them on the radio? Can, do you wave at them? What do you do? No, I mean, there would be a common frequency you could transmit on. But, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, back in the old days, they used to slave the radar 
gun turrets essentially onto you. And if you dropped in behind them, they were taught they'd some of the the bare foxtrots. They were the the more naval ones. They'd throw sonar boys, try and you know literally <laughs> make you collect one if you were sort of underneath them. But you know, I, I remember my first ever scramble, and you're getting nice and close. So you're looking at this Russian who's in this, and you could hear the uh, the supersonic blades on the engine. So that's the first time I've ever heard an aircraft in a jet on its wing. That's unusual. You could hear this sort of this drone, and you're wearing a helmet, and the Phantom was really noisy anyway. And I'd hear this thing, and then you'd go up really close. And I remember the first time seeing in the tail this this Russian guy, and he showed me that he had a can of Coke. <laughs> I, I heard a good story once that a proper Cold War early 80s intercept and somebody did exactly that parky pulled up really close to have a look and the guy in the back was holding up a copy of the Lucas Station magazine <laughs> really <laughs> that's good excellent that's uh, some good intel but so yeah so lightning in the fifth Dunk any other 50s aeroplanes there? Uh, mine was lightning as well. I, you know, this, um, for, for me, that was the one. So uh, I, we're on the same page there, goddess. Well, I, I've got one, which, and this was my, my interesting stat when I showed some boys around the Lank. And when we flew the Vulcan with the Lancaster, and get this, JB. The, uh, so the Lancaster, you know, he got his four engines and then flew in 1941, first flight. When do you reckon the Vulcan, so big delta wing, could fly to Russia and back up, you know, at 50-odd thousand feet. Incredibly performing aircraft. Lancaster was in 1941. When do you reckon the uh, the Vulcan flew? I reckon the Vulcan went about 1948? 52. Oh, really? But. 11 years that's, different. That's taking the wind out yourself. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I thought you were going to go at least mid-60s. No, I mean, he, 2004. I'm, I'm, I'm relatively big. Two years later? No, no JB, no, it was 11. It was war, Sorry, 1986. <laughs> yeah, they were really slow in developing in the uh, in the late 40s. But all those all those three aircraft, the Vulcan, the Victor, uh, sorry, the Vulcan, uh, the Victor and the Valiant, they were developed in incredibly fast time. I mean, if yeah. you look at like how we develop aircraft now, those things were, were flying within what, five, like five, um, five years of specification. It's incredible. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, it, it, extraordinary times. I think you know the Lightning and the Vulcan. That was just bizarre, cutting edge. You know, and and if you do compare ten years earlier, what was flying, and then even ten years before that, you know, you went biplane to Mustang to Lightning. It's just extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, I had one of the good stories I heard about the the Vulcan, and and I do think this one is true. But they had um, they were on quick reaction alert, the nuclear QRA back in the um, I guess sixties, and when they scramble, the crew would go running out there, and apparently because this you know, whether it was nuclear armed or not, this particular one, but they used to padlock shut the crew hatch underneath. Um, so the first thing, the first thing the ground crew would do would run out there, open the padlock, and there was apparently a set of four buttons underneath that you could press. Quite a lot of airplanes have some sort of quick start capability, but you could press these four buttons and it'd start those four massive Olympus Concorde engines spooling up. And this crew ran out when the hooter goes, clearly a practice, 
but they get there no one's got the bloody key for the um uh, for the padlock and someone's <laughs> already started the engine so they're all stood there crossed arms while someone runs has to run back and go and get a set of bolt cutters to let them into their own airplane that sat on the pan running <laughs> amazing it's just typically british who's got the key now, <laughs> it's you now don't you, to me you were saying that you that you've got quite a lot of audio of um of of veterans have you got any audio of um v of v bomber crews no no i haven't actually uh, i mean it's something perhaps that uh you know it's certainly coming more to the uh, the forefront i mean a lot of the um uh, the, the interviews uh, um, that we've been watching over the last few days for RAF 100 have uh, been with Martin Withers, who uh, who we know. And so, you know, perhaps Martin would come on and uh, and, and have a chat with us at some point. That'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? That'd be well, I, gave a chat. I was sat with him on at the uh, at that RAF 100 gala on Saturday. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's a he's a, a good guy, and uh, of course, uh, lots of uh, great stories uh, about. Um, uh, that those Cold War days would come come from Martin, I think. So, well, we'll have to see if we can uh, get him along. We keep promising guests, don't we? And then we, we don't manage to uh, pull one out of the bag. So. We'll do it. We're, we're, we're establishing ourselves. We've got to run out of stuff to say, and then we'll get the guests on. Exactly. So, first guest in about three or four years' time. Now, so was Martin the with the, the Falklands raid as well? Yeah, yeah, he was. Yes, that yes, Martin. must be an awesome story to hear. I'd love to hear that one. Yeah. Have you read that Vulcan Vulcan six oh seven? I can't remember the exact uh, letters, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's the black. Yeah. So the the coolest pictures from that raid are looking at all the aircraft lined up on ascension. It, it, it looks seriously cool. Yeah, um, extraordinary. Uh, I've actually got one. I don't think either of them really qualify because one isn't a fighter, and I think well, one of them one isn't a fighter. Neither of them are in the RAF, and one might have even been developed in the 40s. But, so that's close. Yeah. So the Sea Vixen, I think that looked really, really cool. Um, not sure how good it was. It just looked pre- pretty cool. And the other one, which will probably amaze you, and I just, I just love kind of how it just looks like it's been thrown, thrown together. Probably the ugliest aircraft ever to fly, but that's where its beauty lies, is the Fairy Gannet. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Gannet, yeah. It's such a cool aircraft. Isn't that a Monty Python sketch as well? Oh, the gannet. <laughs> I've um, got no idea. The version. <laughs> um, two Navy, two Navy aircraft there you picked, JB. So we're not going to say much. No. I was thinking of an honourable mention for the ferry swordfish earlier in the, uh, in the 30s. Tell, but I'm not, I'm not, did we, I don't even know whether we flew that in the RAF. No, no. No, Navy, Navy only. Royal Navy, sir. All right, we'll stay away from that one yeah. then. Yeah. Uh, 60s. Any guesses what I went for in the 60s? Yeah, I can guess. Uh, on. Well, the thing Harrier. Is, no, no, well, not not for me. I'm not, I'm not going to say God is his Harrier. I'm going to go. I think that it's going to be along similar lines to me. But the thing is, um, God has asked for fighters, you see, and the, my idea is not a fighter. Oh. Oh. But I've got to put it in there. I've got to put it in there. What did you go with? I went with the SR seventy one. Oh, good shout! But clearly, Clay doesn't. Clay doesn't. It doesn't have to be RAF, does it? You started with a French. Centenary of the RAF. It's traditional. Well, with the RAF, we had exchange officers doing it. (laughs) Oh, that's a belter. Now, do do you mean the SR seventy one or do you mean the A twelve? 
<laughs> no, I know. I'm in the SR17. All right, and I, I just wanted to... Is that you and your conspiracy theories, JB? I, yeah. I, I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. No, that, that's him on uh, that, that's him on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> no, SR17. Yeah. So it's I've written this, the, the book Skunk Works by... Yeah, um, I can't remember his name now. Skunk Works, brilliant book. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I was going to say, God, is I, I read that book about, um, you know, that, you know, that was innovation is a word that gets thrown around an awful lot at the moment. Um, and I think it sort of takes away from it. But I certainly think that uh, the Skunk Works, the Lockheed Martin uh, Skunk Works um, back in the day was just that must have been the most phenomenal uh, place. Uh, and they came up with the, these ideas, but the aeroplane itself it, it just looks right. Anything that flies Mac three plus, you know, has got to go into our. It's got to go into our favourites, whether it was Air Force or not, boys. Yeah, that's a good shout. I actually went with F four for a couple of reasons, mainly because my friend Big Tome. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Goddess. When I went through Valley, there were a bunch of F four guys that were coming through there, and some of their stories were were brilliant for a young well I was 19, 20 at the time coming through and I remember uh, one of the guys Doc Watson talking about the time he ejected um, as they were doing a high alpha demo next to the tanker so I guess he just filled up the jet and there was something to do with reverse wing flow and you could see the fuel vapour spiralling the wrong way up the wing. Yeah you could put the dump on or something I think and yeah uh, yeah. And, uh, and Doc's instructor was demoing this from the boot of a two-seater, and they lost control. Good Ended demo. Ejecting, yeah, ejecting out of this thing, and, and Doc telling me, because he was only a youngster at the time, watching this jet spiral into the sea just below them and make a God almighty splash and thinking, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. Um, there was one of the other boys. Uh, oh, who was it? I think of his name in a minute, but he uh, he'd had an airspeed uh, indicator failure in an F4 and ended up landing it, but landing it too fast. And it shows how powerful this aeroplane is. He put the hook down and took the approach end cable because he knew he was landing above um, approach speed. It ripped the cable out of the ground, um, and he only just stopped at the overrun cable on the far end of the uh, uh, on the far end of the airfield as well. And then subsequently, again, when I did my F-16 training out in the, in the U.S., the guys who did ground school for us out there were all retired USAF pilots. And most of them had flown the F-4, and most of them had flown the F-4 in combat in Vietnam. And on a break from learning about the F-16, you go into the crew room, you sit there with a cup of coffee, and just listen to these boys dit on about their experiences in Thailand, Vietnam. Oh. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the guys had uh, a guy called Bob Harker, had 2,000 hours F4, 1,800 of which were combat hours, and 2,000 hours Eagle. He was first carder on the uh, Eagle as well. You just listen to these guys for hours and hours and hours. Um, and when you think, we're still fighting. So uh, when was it, 1960-odd? 59, 60, the first prototype flew. Yeah. And uh, I think it's the, the Greeks are still flying it now, isn't it? Is the Hellenic Air yeah. Force? Still yeah, flying yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a few kicking around. A few Air Forces still. I think we, we got ours in 68 because they yeah. were modded with the Rolls-Royce engine. Yeah. 
Now, never did anything for me, Phantom. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, and and when I picked up my first brochure to join, the uh, officer and aircrew one had yeah. a picture of an F four with a pilot and a nav on the front of it. Yeah, it looked. Yeah. Now there is well, a. Can point, I, sorry, JB? Oh. Can I just uh, quickly? Now this sounds, but I promise I was going to say this anyway. It's a little bit naff, Ooh. but I was going to pick the Harrier because this is sixties. And I remember doing Chiv and just some the early Harriers, the GR3s, a couple of them sort of uh, came in and, and I just remember seeing these jets and just the concept of, uh, at the time I was naive, I'd call it a fighter, but clearly it wasn't. But of a fast jet, again, I was naive, it wasn't very fast. But essentially being able to land vertically was ridiculously cool and just... The again, the technology and the whole point of you know how the boys would operate that thing off fields. Did you boys? I guess you must have done a fair few takeoffs on grass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that is stuff. You know, my experience of flying, I've done brilliant, but that is mental, really, thinking of it. And I, I seem to recall some boys talking about some squadron scramble in the field and they all kind of just went off in line abreast about 10 of them yeah you know, there's it's a just brilliant ridiculously good flying uh, there was a, a brilliant picture in the sim i can't remember whose it was but yeah one of the sim instructors there it, it was a really top mate um uh, and uh, quietly spoken and there was this picture just stuck on the wall and uh it was i think 12 harriers all taking off line abreast and there was one out the front and so you think, naturally, uh, that was the boss, Negas. That was the junior pilot who got into massive trouble later because he was supposed to let the boss go first, and he jumped the gun. Oh. <laughs> so off he went. And 11 other Harriers sort of followed behind as this JP launched off in the uh, in the field. But, yeah, I mean, there were some incredible uh, incredible operating stories um, from... from but, but as a jet dunk, that is pretty exceptional we talk about all the other aircraft but just the versatility you know being able to do that being able to land in a field yeah it's outrageous really yeah uh, did you ever used to worry about like yeah go on jb did you ever used to worry about like sticks and bits of debris from fields because like don't is is, isn't that lethal isn't that lethal for a jet yeah, it can be, but they would uh, they would try and you know they would clear an area. So you wouldn't just land on the grass vertically. It couldn't do that because the power of the engine would just dig a big hole, and you'd just keep going down until you reach <laughs> the centre of the earth, and then you'd melt. So uh, they had to put down uh, they had to put down um, things they called mexi pads, so metal pads that they ah. pinned into the into the ground with sort of ten foot stakes. I mean, huge big things because the the power of the engine. Say huge big things. That was the tiniest postage stamp you've ever landed on when you were doing it in the middle of a field. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, but no, I don't mean the size of the metal pad. I mean the size of the pins that pinned it down to stop oh. it being blown away when you were, you know, when you were hovering over it. But yeah, they just they were they were tiny. What were they? I, I can't remember. They were they sixty by sixty. It sounds massive, but it really wasn't. Sixty yeah, it's by not sixty. When, you're trying to, when you hover over it and you can't see anything. Yeah, that was sixty really- inches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so but the um you know the the first time one of the first one of the early trips on the harrier conversion unit you do is um once you've got a few vertical landings under your belt you go and land in this place called vigo wood 
at the end of the runway at Wittering, which was enclosed on three sides by a wood. And it was this comp- uh, a, uh, this pad that you'd come in, hover, and then land. And, and what, you know, my course, definitely, but anytime any of us landed, there were half massive tree limbs lying around the place. <laughs> yeah. And then the first time we landed on grass, I, ju- I could not believe I was taking off of grass on a multi-million pound aeroplane and then landing on it where you're bouncing around full off-roading. And I remember afterwards, the ground crew, you remember the, uh, there was a set of doors behind the, uh, the main wheels stunk. Mm. I remember the guy opened up the doors and essentially a bale of hay fell out where all <laughs> burnt grass had collected on land. So what's the actual... So how does it actually work then? Do you have some ground crew lads, some RAF regiment or someone run out to a field, put down your little postage stamp thing, st- stake it in, and then you show up? Yeah, essentially that was Royal Engineers who used to do that. So we'd have um, detachments of Royal Engineers who would sort out the field sites and then you know, then you'd fly the Harriers in. Uh, and it was there, we'd have Royal Engineer detachments as well to fill in holes on runways and, and main operating bases. Um, and it was it was as simple as that. And, that, and those... Uh, that Mexi material had been around for a long time and it used to uh, weren't allowed to land on a little strip of Mexi runway um, I did hear, do you remember Gibbo Dunk, uh, when they moved the jets from Gutterslow to Larbrook he didn't know you weren't allowed to do that and did this rolling vertical landing on this what was a takeoff strip as he landed this bow wave started in front of him so he ended up <laughs> surfing this thing along um, you know, and these big massive pins Dunk was talking about flying out the sides <laughs> I mean, just uh, I mean, I know Park. It's your it's your choice as well, and we're sort of uh, uh, um, stealing it from you a little bit. To be honest, you know, landing it on the ship as well was uh, is it, it, is quite something. You know, to land oh. that aeroplane on the ship. Do, do you boys know? Do you know him personally? The guy who landed his Harrier on a container ship. Who was that? I think was, was he Darky Ward. Oh, I don't know. In fact, wasn't it Rob Schwab? It could have been. It could have been. Um, I'm googling again. Yeah. Some research, but that—that that was the one with the Spanish claim salvage rights. That's the one. Yeah. It is. Now, um, from your experience with Harriers, how daunting would that have been for him? Yeah, <laughs> he, he had nowhere else to go. Yeah, it'd be pretty daunting. His name was Soapy Wat Ian Soapy Watson. Oh, that's uh, it. Um, but. Um, yeah, that would have been pretty daunting. So again, just going back to the the aircraft carrier itself, um, you know, you have a so you have effectively six spots on the aircraft carrier to land on, uh, and each of those, uh, uh, again, they you know that w- when you're standing on them, they look relatively big, but even the aircraft carrier, when you come back to it after you've launched off it for the first time, or you're arriving to the aircraft carrier for the first time, um, given I suppose it's only 600 feet long, our aircraft carrier. They called it a through-deck cruiser, not an aircraft carrier. It wasn't big enough, apparently. And um, it was just, it was like a little speedboat. It was like, flipping heck, have I got to land on that? And uh, the first time I did land on it, I nearly bounced off the side as well. So uh, that was quite quite exciting. It didn't quite shut the throttle in time. It bounced back up in the air, landed on one outrigger, and then came came to rest about three inches from the side of the ship. It wasn't my finest landing. (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the best one I ever saw was um, oh, Park is just showing us a picture of a Harrier GR3 oh, that's it, that is the landing on the ship that's the landing on the ship, my god I thought he got it bang on top of the I thought that was my landing, Parky um, I, I, 
I thought you got it bang on top of the, the container. I didn't realize. Oh, no, it was Stella Light. So it was that C Harrier with the Soapy Watson in the bottom. No, I, I, yeah. Yeah. I just mentioned it from the pilot's point of view. Imagine it from the crew's point of view. Yeah, they wouldn't know he was coming, would they? <laughs> no, no idea. And he just lands. <laughs> there you go. He, he sort of messed up that truck, hasn't he? He has, yeah. He's put a dent in it. Yeah. <laughs> one of the best one of the best videos I've ever seen was Bradders. He's a, a guy still in the RAF now. It, it's a, his head-up display footage of landing on Illustrious or Invincible on the only spot that's left. And you could not reverse park a car in the space that he lands this thing in. It is absolutely nose to tail on that ship. And when you speak to Bradders about it, uh, he was definitely a little worried on this particular one. Oh. It is it is flipping brilliant. So, Parky's always uh, giving, you a, giving you a bit of banter about how slow the Harrier is. <laughs> Obviously, uh, speed is important for a fighter aircraft. How capable or how useful was the Sea Harrier as a, as a fighter aircraft? What a great question. A, none of us flew it, but if you believe the Navy boys, then actually it was really quite capable. And to be honest, when we flew against it, when we did sort of uh, exercises with it, um, it um, it did really quite well. It had, was it, a, it was it a Blue, Vic, uh, Blue Vixen radar? It, it was, yeah. Yeah, Blue Vixen. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a pretty advanced radar, and it was set up for that particular aeroplane as well. Remember, they were the one of the first platforms in the UK to get the AMRAM as well. Can only carry one or two of them. Um, I think with the, but... with the AMRAM, it was far more capable, wasn't it? And the upgraded radar. Originally, it came out in the Falklands. You know, it was just, uh, we just called it a pulse radar. So it, it's uh, it's not looking at velocity, JB, without getting geeky. Yeah. It's going to see a lot of the ground and the sea. So uh, a lot of the... Um, the attacks, or the, 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 they shot down, you know, a lot of uh, Argentinian... 20, you know, was it uh, not? Skyhawks, etc., and uh, Etondas. But they were mainly after the boys had bombed. They, they couldn't, you know, find them with their radar. So once they knew where they were, because they were over the islands, they were oh. tending to get the kills then. That, that's my understanding. Whereas, you know, you could argue that the old Phantom with a with a Pulse Doppler radar, you know, if how it... This is, this is you know... Back in the day, I flew the ex-Navy, you know, uh, Phantoms. You know, they always talked about that was an incredibly potent aircraft as an air defender. So it, it had real look-down, shoot-down capability, more than those Harriers did in the sort of, uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s at the time. Having said that, you know, it, it did an awesome job in the uh, in the Falklands War. So, you know, technology it, moves on. Uh, and I think with the new radar and the, the AMRAM, it, it turned into a good, you know, a potent air defender at the end of it. Did you ever use to... Yeah, it was, it was the right aeroplane at the right time, definitely, in the Falklands. If you read, there's a couple of books about the Falklands War. There's um, some there's GR3 books about the, the bombing aspects of it, and there's a couple of uh, Sea Harrier over the Falklands by Sharky Ward. And, uh, and also, I thought, a really good book by a guy called Dave Morgan, who I've met a couple of times, actually, who um, got four air-to-air kills in the Falklands. He was a, an RF flight lieutenant on exchange with the Navy. We couldn't have done any of that without the Harrier because of the ability to fly off our ships. And despite any limitations of, you know, they were just sidewinders at the time, weren't they, with that pulsed radar, as uh, Big Tone was talking about. <laughs> uh, they just did an amazing job. 
And mm. the mix of the two, where you had the GR3s who were very used to bombing and the um, and the Sea Harriers who were able to do the air defence side, there's always a bit of luck that that just happened to be their particular time and, you know, we could put everything together and get it down to the Falklands. But, um, you know, just an amazing job. Did, and, yeah, go on. Did, did, you ever use to, did you ever use to train against them in the, um, in the tornado parky? Yeah, yeah, I've done, you know, we used to go and do exercises and, you know, I fought the Sea Harriers in the Phantom, you know, just doing air combat against them. And also the Tornado F3, the fair bit of Sea Harrier, a fill, we'd call it. So, um, you know, either you're full up combat 1v1 or, you know, maybe 2v2, 4v4, something like that. So you just do missions against them. And uh, yeah, they were, you know, they were good fights, actually. You know, it, it was... Um, it was fairly, you know, even Stevens, I seem to recall, you know, it was uh, the the uh, the Phantom, we would take the tanks off so it would be completely clean. So it, that, the performance was was pretty good, actually. Then it was a sort of 7G fighter, the Phantom, um, which is almost, you know, we convinced ourselves. And it's probably true if you'd actually go to war and you hit the merge, you would jettison the tank. So you would turn your big lumbering three tank uh, Phantom into a into a lightweight fighter by jettisoning the tank. So uh, yeah. that's how we fought them. And uh, it was good. The, uh, I mean, the boys all bang on about it, but they, uh, the, the interesting thing about the Harrier, when you're fighting against it, they, they would move the nozzles. And I remember seeing that. And, you know, the thing could fly ridiculously slowly. Uh, what were Viffing, was it called? Where you vector, what was that stand for, boys? Vectoring in forward flight. There we go. And, you know, the, suddenly this Harrier from doing, you know, its top speed of 300 or whatever it was, <laughs> would, be doing, uh, would be doing about 60. But it was... Uh, it was a good fight, yeah, definitely an interesting one with uh, you know with those capabilities. Excellent, right? Well, we've been going for about an hour and a quarter now, and uh, I think we're what in the seventies or something. So we'll catch up with the rest another time. Um, do we have any questions this week, Godders? Yeah, we've got a couple. Um, we've got uh, so one from uh, a guy Ian Savage um, on Twitter. Uh, He's got, uh, if the BBMF could buy, obtain another aircraft, what would each of you choose? No, I oh. bet you'd all choose the same one. Yeah. Tell us, Doug. It would be the Mosquito, wouldn't it? Yes, there you go. Uh, Easy. It's got to be. Is there still one of those flying somewhere? They have got them, yeah. They've, there's, uh, I've lost count, but I think there's certainly one. I think there might be two. I've got a uh, feeling it's in Chester for some reason. It's not in the UK, so... Um, Build them in New Zealand. New Zealand, yeah. Really? Yeah. But there's a real push to try and get one in the UK. But, of course, you know, raising the kind of money that's required for these projects is is very difficult indeed. Um, and then getting the correct drawings and getting the jigs made. And there's just... A, it, the complexity of it is, is huge. 3D printing, um, I've told you. Say it. Oh yeah, 3D printing. We'll print Sold it. In a few years' time, it'll be fine. But um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's a it's a fantastic aeroplane. There's a number of reasons, for, you know, why as well. Again, I mentioned it earlier. It's a war winner. There's no doubt about it. Uh, fantastic performance. Good looking aeroplane. Uh, again, when you talk about innovation, uh, an aeroplane made of uh, balsa wood. You know, amazing. Uh, and um, and 
just a, a lovely aeroplane, I'm sure, to fly, not that I've had the privilege. But equally, you know, for, for BBMF, because that was the question, um, it's very difficult because we only have a very small amount of engineers work on that flight. Mm. So you're pretty limited to then the types of engines um, that you that, that you can work with. So you, suddenly you need to specialize in different engines. That's another huge skill set and would probably require more people to be there on the flight, which of course we don't have that luxury um, in terms of being able to get as many people as we would want. So the, the, the Mosquito would have given us the benefit of actually being powered by Merlin engines, um, very similar to the ones they already have there. So they might have needed a carpenter to knock up a, a bit of the woodwork here and there, but apart from that... Just pull know, them up they, a building site. Yeah, exactly, yeah, get a chippy in, uh, but that would be <laughs> it. Excellent. Yeah, definitely a good shout. All agreed on that one. Um, we've got another question from uh, Sean Doherty. Um, quite niche, this one. Did Parky assist with the mayday that the Vulcan declared as shown on the Guy Martin programme? That was Dunk. That was me. Yeah. That was Dunk. And that was uh, talk, the talk gear. Yeah, Dunk, it was you. Yeah, it was. Um, I was actually going through it today, actually, just having a look at that very thing, because uh, I was just thinking about uh, that, that particular incident. Um, and, um, yeah, we, we'd been, we were displaying. It was... Um, it was myself and Jez Attridge, who was the station commander at uh, Coningsby at the time. We'd gone up to uh, to Presswick to do so. Uh, there was a an international air show uh, that was always run at Lucas, uh, and I think I believe that was the only international air show in scotland at the time um and in 2013 they had the last one of those because lucas was shutting down so they then um, decided they would uh, do their own international air show and they they put it on the seafront to air and so presswick was uh, the, the closest base and they based all the airplanes out of it so uh, we went up there to uh, to go and do that display Cut a long story short, we, we took off, we did the display, the weather was beautiful actually, uh, and just before us there was a Saab Draken display. Oh. Um, I know, it was a, just a cool aeroplane to, uh, to, to, to look at, so we were holding crowd rear, watching this Draken, uh, you know, rorting up and down the Scottish, uh, the Scottish coastline there, um, and as we came off the display, we were supposed to then transit directly across, um, over... Um, past um, Macrahanish and then go over to Ireland to do a display at Port Rush. Um, and um, so we we're both supposed to, to transit over there. But as I left the display frequency, um, the, um, the director on the ground said, could you please go and give the Vulcan a hand? He's having some, some problems with his undercarriage. So, um, so we, uh, I sent Jez off to do the, the show over at Port rush on his own and i went off to go and find the vulcan who of course he you know he had this problem and his thought process was you know the, the swedish guy was there he was in a jet but he didn't know you know how that airplane performed and if there was a language problem you know the radios and all of those aircraft are not great so you know he'd thought all of that through and thought actually the pilot of it was a guy called phil odell who's the chief test pilot for um for rolls royce and he knew it was me displaying so we'd worked together before so he's you know he said you know can don't come and have a look and see so i, I then spent the uh, the next 10 minutes in close formation on the vulcan um and uh, having having a look at uh, at what was wrong with the uh, the undercarriage and, and translating that across to the crew in the aircraft um 
and they tried yawing the aircraft left and right and they were going through their their checklist as they as they would um, did you land on the top and get out and um and have a look I did. I landed. Yeah, I did. It's quite tricky to climb past that big intake to get underneath. But uh, with, uh, with with the right ropes and uh, carabiners, I managed. But no, I, I, what I did do is they were just about to put the gear up and it was stuck. at The, the nose gear was stuck at a 45 degree angle, um, <clears throat> jammed. And they were just about to put it up. And I said, well, just wait. I just I'll move underneath and have a look to see if there's anything uh, obvious jamming it so i did feel like which thunderbird was it that got you know taken up into the belly of the bigger thunderbird it thunderbird was two. ludicrous sorry thunderbird, thunderbird, two. thunderbird two thunderbird two yeah exactly so under Virgil. massive vulcan i went you know looking directly up into the nose wheel bay and um <clears throat> had a little uh, sneaky peek underneath uh, to, to see if there was nothing there and anyway so Thankfully, he then um, they, they then moved the gear. Nothing graunched and grinded, and it actually went down um, correctly. Uh, and I then landed, and then of course he was still worried it might collapse. So they landed this huge aircraft and effectively did a massive wheelie down the runway to get it as slow as possible in case when they put the nose down it collapsed. But oh. thankfully it didn't. And uh, that was it, at Coningsby, wasn't it? No, no, that was at uh, that was up at Presswick. Oh, did I land it up there? Because there was another time, there was one a few years before that, actually, where the, the Vulcan had had a gear snag, declared a mayday, and landed back in a Coningsby. Because remember, it was in the, the 29 Squadron hangar. Yeah, I think that was a hydraulic oh. failure, wasn't it? So yeah. What, so what was the issue with the Vulcan that you were that you were helping out? Uh, I, it, it was undoubtedly a hydraulic problem of some sort. Um, but uh, but who knows? You know, the um, I, I didn't find out subsequently exactly what was wrong. It, it then stayed on the ground for a number of days, and we of course took off and went our merry way. But um, I, I expect it was a hydraulic problem uh, of some sort. Excellent. Good. Right. Final Good final question. question um, this one's from Catherine Rhodes, um, uh, who is a magician. Actually, met her a couple of times at uh, at various things, um, and. Part of the magic circle. She hasn't told me how they do it, but we'll get round to that, I'm sure. Um, but her question is a good one to finish on. A bit of crew room banter. What's your favourite biscuit? <laughs> oh, blimey. That's a difficult question. Favourite? I, I answered her on Twitter. I couldn't hold it back. I went with chocolate hobnobs. Oh, I don't know about that, Goddess. What, dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Oh, I'll go milk chocolate. Really? Oh dear, let yourself down there. <laughs> Mason never <laughs> eats biscuits or chocolate. His body's a temple, you see. Unless, it, unless it's hyperglycemic. In a wanna. <laughs> <laughs> well, JB, you can answer this one. What are you going with? Is it Jaffa Cake a biscuit? Yeah. Well, or is it a cake? Isn't there a comedian sketch about this? I don't know. I don't know. But I, I, I go with Jaffa Cake. A Jaffa cake is. Yeah, have you got one of those? You know the uh, twelve yard ones. It's like instead of a yard uh, of veil, you do a yard of Jaffa cakes at yeah, Christmas. Not, yeah, not happening. <laughs> uh, just, just to um, elaborate on that, just very, 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 very quickly. What do you put in your pack lunches when, when, um, when you go flying? Do you get issued with it, or do you have to buy it? That used to be the funny thing when we do transatlantic stuff. We'd stop at the Azores. Um, they'd end up giving you stuff that really wasn't compatible with, with a fast jet cockpit, like some spreadable cheese and a knife. 
A pot noodle. <laughs> a pot noodle. Have you ever eaten a dry pot noodle? Oh, my God. <laughs> and they're generally sandwiches, JB. What's your biscuit, though, Parky? I don't know. I'm, on, I'm still... <laughs> Come on. Big tone. I did, say the, I did say to Catherine on Twitter, I considered Garibaldi, but um, Ooh, the little one. squashed flies in it didn't do, didn't you know, do it for me. I think Some it's chocolate chip thing. Really, a chocolate yeah. chip thing. Yeah. Right, all right, Dunk. You've taken the Mickey out of us. What are you going with? Come on, big I'm really vanilla, I'm afraid, in this uh, in this particular case, which is dark chocolate digestive. Oh, after all that hobnob banter, be dull, What's isn't it? it? What terrible <laughs> what a terrible ends of a brilliant podcast. <laughs> <sighs> oh well. Right, well, th- uh, thank you for listening to yet another Pack Pilot Episodes podcast. If you want to support our show, please go onto Twitter, follow us there. Uh, Goddard, where are we? At Pilot Episodes Pod. And I suppose at some point I'm going to have to do some sort of Facebook page. I'll get onto that, I am sure. But most importantly, please leave us an iTunes review. That's what really matters. It lets other people know what we're about, pushes up the charts, and just helps spread the word a tiny bit for our, for our humble endeavour. Um, and actually, before we go, just remind everyone uh, for the books that we mentioned today. Okay, so we uh, we spoke about uh, The Big Show, which is by uh, Pierre Klosterman, about his experiences uh, going through uh, France on the way to Germany uh, in World War II, and also Skunk Works, uh, talking about Lockheed Martin's uh, innovative Skunk Works that came up with the SR-71 and other fantastic aircraft, and that's by... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And are rich. Excellent. So from so from Godders, Skullcrusher, and of course, the newly named Big Tone. Goodbye, and probably see you in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs>